Okay, here I am. Here we go. I'm trying this for the first time. I've got a mic. See it? Got a microphone. It's connected to my computer. Can you guys hear me? This is all I'm asking for. All I really want to know is can you hear me? Because I got a mic so that I don't have to worry about what I was doing before. Sounds good? Fantastic. That thing was bugging the hell out of me and now I don't have to worry about it. All right, great guys. So, I want to start today with uh, a quote from a Washington Post article from earlier last week, I think, or last weekend or so. White House officials also hope Americans will grow numb to the escalating death toll and learn to accept tens of thousands of new cases a day, according to three people familiar with the White House's thinking, who requested anonymity to reveal internal deliberations. Americans will, quote, live with the virus being a threat, in the words of one of those people, a senior administration official. Now, I don't want to be the type of say I told you so, but I fucking told you so. When in April, when they shut the door on the first quarantine, I said, there is no way that this ends with anything other than a social inurement to death at a higher level because we do not have the social capacity either technologically, through supply chains, or just the uh, connection to one another, the social bond necessary for a scientist to say there's a virus and for uh, more than 50% of the adult population to say, okay, I believe you, and not say, who are you working for, George Soros? And then I'm going to spit in your face if you, if you tell me not to go to the Trader Joe with a fucking, without a mask on. Those things basically mean that there's no way we were going to do anything other than shrug our shoulders after we got bored sitting inside, go out and give it to each other, and then shrug our shoulders again. And the only reason they didn't do it then, because think about it, if they did it then, they'd said suck it up, then we wouldn't have ever had the huge collapse, right? We would have, wouldn't have to be digging our way out of this hole in the first place. All those small businesses would still be open. And there were some real, you know, some real uh, jihadists for capitalism like Lieutenant Governor of Texas Dan Patrick who said that explicitly but we needed to be we needed to come to the conclusion ourselves because at that point in our in our social order in America's social order that many people dying of a virus was not acceptable because it was in a vacuum of course we don't want half a million people dying of a virus but now we know what the Alternative to a half a million people dying in the viruses. Staying at home, getting really bored, not being able to do anything. Your job lose it leaving. Then I guess you gotta just accept all the death. Now, of course, as we said, that wasn't necessary. You know, we could have created some sort of emergency command economy that paid people to stay home and maintain uh, at the safest way possible our supply chains. But of course, we didn't have the capacity or the inclination in our ruling class to do that. And so instead, we got what we all knew we were going to get. A new level of death that we accept in this country. A new threat that you accept. Like, how? In the 19th century, nobody was afraid they were going to die in a car crash because they didn't know what a car was. Now, it kills 50,000 people a year. 
pedestrians and, and bicyclists get splattered on the regular, and it's it's accepted. You don't want it to happen to you, but it probably won't, and it's the price you pay to live in a, in the a free society. Now, permanent lung scarring and a dead grandmother are the price you pay for uh, a free society. So we're finally here. Just took us having to be inside, get bored, have nothing happen in the, in, during the time we were indoors to make it worthwhile to do so. Uh, and then, either because we're cranky babies or because we decided we wanted to protest uh, police injustice, we decided at some level that it was worth the risk to go outside. And as soon as that happened, we all are now blaming each other, but what that means is we're accepting blame. And that is the ideal and necessary condition for the people in charge, that we're all blaming each other, which we 100% are. Uh, and... So every viral video of some asshole being a psychopath in a mall, and those people should be fucking, like, tranquilized by the bear patrol and put in cages, 100%. But the social ritual of the condemnation of that, that's just us expressing our powerlessness and our willing, our desire to blame each other because we're in front of one another and, and the people in charge are too far away to yell at. Yeah, I cut my own hair today. I just used the buzzer. I did not go the full, uh, uh, full number one yet. I might later, but right now, it's good enough. Good enough for still, but basically being at home all the time. Yes, I got the advanced copy of Reaganland. I'm very excited. Nine hundred pages, just on the on the seventy-four to eighty, and apparently it's the last one because it's about the rise to power of conservatism, and that culminates with Reagan in 80. At that point, his story, it's a different story. So I can't wait to finish it. I haven't really started it. Um, but thinking about Reagan specifically really does make me think of why, it, it, made me, it, it, it reminded me of how insane everyone is, right? Like what I was talking about, people will lick lick windows and spit on each other and throw things like do things that any other generation of americans would consider um signs of deep mental disorder and people are doing them to get clout from conservatives the kind of people who used to value uh, a certain public decorum i mean these are the people who like to talk about how you know in the old days uh, men used to wear hats and now they're cheering as some psychotic baboon uh, does a fucking spear tackle of a display of masks in Target. That's not dignified behavior. But it is inherent to the... It's, it's the only response we have to the moment we're in. And Reagan is a big reason for that. And the reason I think that, uh, that this book is huge, it's by far the longest book uh, Pearlstein's written, uh, and uh, talking about a period that's usually under-discussed uh, when you talk about the the tumultuous rise of conservatism. I mean, people think about it in terms of either Nixon or Reagan ruling, not Nixon, not, uh, not that interregnum with Carter. But it's the most important period, that hinge point, that is, that is the, the, the transition point to the late capitalist uh, uh, kind of cannibal lifeboat economy we've been living on ever since. When, we when the ruling class decided that they were going to basically uh, deal with the crisis of stagflation and the, the, the crisis of the 70s, the crisis of, of uh, oil and energy uh, shocks and, 
and and increased demand for uh, real wage growth among a powerful working class was to break the power of the working class. It was explicitly put in those terms. Paul Volcker, Carter's appointed Treasury Secretary, said the standard of living of the American worker will have to go down. And it has been, slowly and steadily for 40 years. Because now with, that, uh, with the engine of the, of the industrial economy clipped, and America being just this, this, this feed pig, like we're, we're, in the global economy, we are like one of those state fair pigs that they just stuff with corn all day so that it can win in a, in a, in a blue ribbon for being the fucking fattest sow west of the Mississippi. That's us on the supply chain. We're just Fed share. I thought I said Fed share. If I said Treasury Secretary, I was wrong. It was Fed share. Uh, wolfing, but he was appointed by Carter. Wolfing down just the slurry, the corn slurry. Um, it's only a matter of time for it's all going to keep sinking, especially if Americans keep having to uh, keep having to spend with no commensurate rise in income, but with a high debt, an increasing debt that can never get repaid. That's that's where the bubbles come in. And asset bubbles have been the only driver of the American economy since then, which is why we've had so much more uh, instability. It's much more like the Gilded Age that way. Every 20 years, like a punctuated shock. Uh, and it's why it, it's why life gets worse as a material level for people over the years. Now, that crisis started in the 70s, and it was apparent to everyone that the earth was opening up. And as much as Car and Carter deserved every abortion he got, and he deserved to lose, because from his position as the ruler of, of the president, which means he has a different set of stakeholders than he would be even as a Democratic uh, member of Congress or a Democratic governor, being president puts you into a deeper enmeshment with the very highest levels of capital uh, and therefore decreases any leverage on you from the party that you supposedly represent. And under that conditions, Carter pursued austerity vigorously. And the thing is, is that that was dealing with reality, but not in a way that anybody wanted to imagine, not the way anybody wanted to see, not a way anybody wanted to believe they lived in. This is America. They didn't want to believe they lived in a country that had, that was intentionally reducing its uh, sights, uh, its, its ambitions. My God. Now, of course, the other thing that could have been done is overthrowing capitalism and abolishing profit and socializing production. And all of a sudden, a lot of these problems would have gone away, in fact, permanently. But there was nobody at the table with anywhere like that on the agenda. It was entirely co-opted labor and uh, capital that table so since that was off the table and austerity like real austerity for the human for the american population which has been ongoing for 40 years real austerity was going to happen no matter what both parties for the next 40 years until 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 kingdom come until the collapse until whatever there was no going to be there's no interrupting it because now it was off the table as a political question because both parties agreed on it. And once both parties agree on something, it no longer has political valence. And so the question of austerity is no longer a political question because who's going to bring it up? The only people who can bring it up profitably and meaningfully are the two parties. So that's off the agenda. There will be nothing but austerity. So the political question comes, what is our relationship to austerity? How do we deal with and process culturally the reality of lower standards of living for American workers? Now Carter, with his Malay speech, famously attempted to 
recognize this moment and bridge that gap with public morality. And as much as you can say fuck Carter for being the spearhead of neoliberalism, you could say, if you wanted to be generous, you could say there really was no alternative because the working class, working class power, although it was high, it was very, very high, was not high enough to overcome the hegemonic influence of the bourgeois class dictatorship that American democracy is. So there was no, even if he'd wanted to, the support wouldn't have been there to make it happen. So say he's stuck. If austerity really is intractable now because of the political reality of the moment, and you know what, you could make an argument it was, then the question becomes how do we process it? And Carter was correct. You process it by reassessing and redefining people's values. Because you could have a decent society still with a lower standard of living if there was a greater degree of social pleasure and identity and uh, I, I guess you want to you put a word around it, spirituality. Like there is, you exchange some, like the Soviet Union, like nobody ever, uh, Khrushchev wanted the Soviets to like, uh, you know, outpace America's uh, American production of consumer goods. But that was misguided because the whole idea of communism was you don't need all that shit because you have social solidarity. And so Carter's whole notion of, of public sacrifice, coming to terms with what we'd done in Vietnam, coming to terms with what our consumption society had wrought, was an attempt to, to inject a moral dimension back into American life that would have replaced some of that uh, thwarted material uh, gain that Americans are going to be able to access less and less over time. If, 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 if a morality is reintroduced into public life, if, if meaning, meaning, I guess is the word I'm really looking for. If meaning is reinjected into public life, then reduced, if, as long as you're not talking about reducing to penury, if you're talking about, you know, one car instead of two, houses that are smaller, honestly, that would be good for everybody. People would be happier in a less economically, ecologically damaging fashion. And that is what communism is supposed to create. That's the goal. Uh, is to create a society that is like that. Like a lot of those questions of how do you get everybody all the stuff under communism are answered by nobody's going to need all that stuff because it's, they're not compensating for a hole in their spirit because there is a social being and social morality. So Carter was, the problem was, is too far out of it's the, 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 it, Carter might have been well-meaning, but that's typical liberal idealism. Like there is no, there is no, uh, element of our economy that's going to distribute morality, that's going to distribute meaning into our social interactions. All it's going to do is what capitalism always does, destroy the meaning of social interactions. Everything solid melts into air, and that means everything that is meaningful off of a ledger book, everything that has meaning that cannot be quantified by dollars, is dissolved in the acid of capitalist in, uh, marketplace interactions. And so it was a forlorn, childish, quixotic hope by Carter. And people obviously said, fuck off. And what did Reagan do? Reagan wrote in and said, here's how we're going to square this. I'm not going to acknowledge that austerity is real. You're just going to feel it happen to you slowly and not realize the source. What I am going to do is I'm going to say, fuck public morality. America is about getting yours and go get yours. Morning in America. Let's get that bread. 
because it's the greatest country that's ever been and, and all the shit that you're terrified that horrible traumatic 60s and 70s you experienced that was just uh, that was just liberals going out getting out of hand and now we're going to bring them back in America is in tip top shape like that giant heart attack you suffered that was not because of your diet that was because you got scared by a hippie and you got infarcted uh, let's go on full steam ahead and that's where we've been since every politi- politician except for Bernie of course running who has run for president for either party for both parties since 1980 has been running at that same level of knowing that they will be enforcing austerity because there is no alternative but uh, maintaining a cultural fantasy of endless consumption as patriotism well you can see how there's going to be a point where a crisis hits and we're in the middle of it where the fantasy can no longer be sustained by the felt reality like that that we're no longer the frogs in the in the slowly boiling uh uh water who don't know the temperature's going up we fucking know it we're feeling scalded but the vast majority of politically minded americans anyway people who process this stuff through a political lens have spent their entire adult lives and that is everyone almost marinating in a unstinting ideological uh consensus that america is perfect uh and america's institutions are perfect and america's values i.e consumption as self-expression are or are the sum total of morality and for a lot of these yahoos christian morality but they could no longer be uh carried out you can't live that way because everything's getting worse you can't even go to the fucking bar and so what happens? Well, the same way that those early Gnostic Christians decided that because they couldn't live as Christians in this world, then this world must not have been created by God, but by an evil subsequent demiurgical God. Our new materialist Christians, reactionary Christians, who have this as their built-in uh, mindset, uh, like beyond ideology, like the, the, the heuristic they view everything through, uh, they see a world now where America as it is in their head and as it has been propagated through culture to them is so at at odds with the world they see around them that it can't be the real america it's a demiurgy america it's controlled by an evil elite within the country within all these structures so within the republicans there are elite within the democrats there are elite at every level elite and these elite form that is the new demiurge that's what that's the deep state that QAnon rails against that's the that's the jewish conspiracy that alt-right uh, pepe types are talking about and it's an it's a necessary it's it's an inevitable necessary psychic compensation for living in a world that can no longer comport with uh your image of the world and that all started because reagan decided to make that bet and it paid off politically and now it's the only game in town and it's helped make everybody insane because the conditions have only deteriorated and we have not spent a moment reckoning with that because we're all living in cloud cuckoo land looking at the flames on the side of the cave trapped in the demiurge's fantasy and they're not the only ones i mean it's amazing and fun to watch them you know um, 
try to square the country they're living in with the one in their head and the reality of living in this country, this shitty piece of shit country that can't even stop a fucking virus that, like, the Italians were able to handle. The fucking Italians. And, of course, they're breaking their minds. But every, everyone is because the, 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 the technology, the social uh, and material technology exists now to allow everyone to indulge completely in their particular psychotic uh, uh, justification uh, for the reality. A uh, 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 compensatory narrative, I guess I would say. That's what it is. Like the internet, I'm talking specifically about the internet, yes, allows you to indulge in a, in a uh, exculpatory narrative around everything that makes you feel powerless and terrified and miserable in your real life. And I think one of the ones that's really dominant online, not, not among psycho right-wingers, but among people who consider themselves liberals now and leftists, is this goddamn question of fucking culture cancel. Goddamn culture cancel and such. Of course, there was that letter today by those guys, whatever the hell, I don't care, didn't read it, don't have any interest. Don't have any interest in any of it. Just to say that it is not cancel culture. It's the internet culture. What you're describing, every element of this that people describe, because it's like the blind man and the elephant. There's 50 million things people mean when they say it, and none of them are metal. And that's half the problem, is that no one is operating off of the same definition. But every single one of these things emanates from the incentive structure of the entrepreneurial social... uh, uh, engager on social media. Social media specifically, because this is all in social media, right? Even in the people who are in regular media, this is all about how their work is received and retransmitted through social media, which is what keeps them employed or not. So it's all social media. And the incentives there, as I've talked about, are all towards building up individual identity that is separate from a group identity, but also maintaining your position within that by patrolling the borders of acceptable thought. Everyone does it. It's inherent. All these questions about, like, are you enforcing, uh, are you enforcing uh, acceptable opinions? Of course you are. That's everyone is doing that. That's what it is. Because it's all, it's all virtual. It's entirely defined by our uh, opinions. And so we're slicing the, the world around us up and we're slicing up the people around us and of course it's infected with paranoia and of course people are always denouncing one another and of course the people are self-censoring that's that's part of being in a self-conscious uh, uh, um, subculture like a table at a lunchroom and so people talking about it as cancel culture are missing the toys entirely this is just the internet and when you see things like the fucking letter saying, like, we need more free speech, and people saying, we need less free speech. Look, who are they, who are they addressing this to? Like, who is the letter to? The, the Secretary General of Cancel Culture? The King of Antifa? The thing about this, the terrifying thing, the thing that people want to ignore as much as the Q psychos want to ignore the fact that the country they live in has decided that it will only continue operating off of the blood of the exploited worker such as them. They don't want to deal with that reality. These people don't want to deal with the reality that all these questions about the morality and veracity and usefulness of cancel culture, just like with statues destroying and riots, is impotent and meaningless because 
even if you came to a conclusion, there's nothing you can do for the inf with the information because there's no one directing it. We are all operating spontaneously and without coordination. This is, I keep banging on this because this is the foundational and elementary fact of the American left is that it is not organized. And, and there's a fantasy of organization that you see because things, you go on the internet and all those ones and zeros, they coalesce into recognizable shapes. And here's a shape over there that looks like the left. But it only looks like the left because it's online. And cancel culture, wanting to patrol the bounds of discourse, that's what everyone is going to be personally incentivized to do. And nothing can change that incentive. No one can order them to not want to do that because they're not in a chain of command. They don't have a, 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 a cadre org or even a membership org discipline. They're all operating independently and by independent motives. And those motives will always be to find out the interloper, cut them from the herd, and then get credit for pointing it out. Getting a little badge for finding the black sheep and pulling them out of the herd. That's, that's, that, that incentive structure is transcendent. It's, it's basically randomized in the sense that there's no on and off switch. And that's what arguing about, like, is it good or bad? Who cares? No one can make it happen one way or the other. You're just coping. Like if you say, actually, it's good, it's cope. You're coping. You don't want to deal with the, the, the terrifying randomness of it. So you say, actually, this is good. You're riding on the back of a tiger and you're like, actually, this is fun. I completely control this operation. Because who wants to think that it's totally random? But it is. And that's why one of the big arguments of people who are pro-cancel culture, whatever that means, is they'll, they'll say, first, it's good that people are held to account, but also it, uh, no one's ever been canceled, which are contradictory because if, no, if it doesn't hold people to account, what's the point? You know, anyone who's emphasizing, and a lot of people do this, how no one's ever really canceled, well, then it's a waste of time and you should stop doing it. But you can't stop doing it because you didn't start. It's just happening. So... That's why a question that on its face is beside the point becomes central because it's the only question you can answer, even though it doesn't connect to the actual phenomenon. But everybody wants to believe that there's someone directing this thing, that there's someone behind the curtain, and there isn't. That's what's the real terrifying truth. And so people say, well, what do I do then? And I think it's you try to disengage. I said, broken fucking record on this, but at the end of the day, there's only a few tenants that I'm trying to follow and everything else kind of spools around them like cotton candy coming off of the, uh, out of the machine. And one of them is log the fuck off. Because you're, you're, you're at the end of the day, all the arguments you're doing about cancel culture, both in your head and online, it's as useful as the people arguing about what date JFK Jr. is going to emerge from the middle of the fucking, uh, the national, uh, the reflecting pool at the National Mall and hang all the traitors. It's dancing on the head of the pin, theological bullshit, because it's all compensatory cope for the fact that the world is going down the fucking drain and there are no countervailing institutions to stop it. I just dropped like 200 list viewers in like two minutes. Man, did people get, uh, was that too real or too insane?
Um, somebody says these streams are theological bullshit. I agree. I agree they are. But I am not claiming that they have political value. This is, this is a commentary on a, on a situation happening. I know that it seems like a huge cop-out, and it kind of is, but at the same time, it's rhetorically necessary. Because how else do I position myself between the phenomena and the need to discuss the phenomena, especially given the fact that it's all in the same medium? And I think, like, for me, it comes down to Twitter is for having fun with your friends. And whenever I see a post by someone that isn't having fun with your friends, or where having fun with your friends has turned into uh, controlling who your friends are, then you're not using it correctly. And if that leaves you, if that leaves you politically thwarted and feeling like, oh, I feel, I feel like I'm not doing enough about all the things out there, then that means you need to find something in your immediate vicinity that has political meaning to you. And I can't tell you that because I'm not you. And I'm not in your position. And that is where the unit, because there are universal uh, uh, principles, but then there are particular principles. And I can only speak to universal ones because particular realities are individual and are defined by the material circumstances, which I don't have access to information about. I mean, you get the Twitter and the internet as information carrying device is what people always come back to when you say it's actually good, right? They say, I find out about so many actions and stuff on Twitter. And if that was ever extricable, that would be uh, true. But you cannot pull that part of it out and say it's good because all of the good implicit in it is an information transferring thing are marbled with the bad. And then so you still have to balance the two. You can never pull the good out separately. And I think, it the, I think the balance is the bad. That's me. I don't think it's something you can prove one way or the other. I'm just saying where my, uh, my instincts say uh, go. And I, I mean, as I said, I don't even know. I'm not an internet guy, really, hilariously. I don't even know how to stream movies. I don't know how to fucking uh, pirate movies. I've never done it successfully. See, there is no way to power to influence the world. No, there is. There is. It just isn't online. And if that is... And here's the thing. On first glance, that looks like an unbridgeable gap because the, the world around us feels so uh, vast and, and un, inscrutable compared to the frictionless realm online. But I'm telling you, people, I swear to God, if you don't give yourself the out of online, if you close the door behind you, if you burn your ships like Cortez in Mexico, and you insist yourself upon moving forward, then you will get there. And that's where the grill pill thing comes in. Like somebody was talking, what's, apparently there's an urban di dictionary definition of grill pill that says like, logging off from politics and not caring and indulging in bourgeois affectations. It's not it. But it's processed like that by people for whom non-political, non-online, uh, non uh, non non-mediated uh, political identity is 
inconceivable. And so it's like they can't see it. Like, not truly, but uh, kind of racistly and, uh, uh, and I guess it's, it's like urban legend at this point. The thing with the Indians who couldn't see the, see the ships coming in. Like they couldn't see Cortez's ships because they couldn't process them. Like, that's not true. But I think for a lot of online people, the equivalent is true. And that they have inst they've already in their head ruled out political action off of line. And so when you say log off and do something else, their mind immediately fails in the gap and says, oh, you mean stop caring about politics. No, I mean force yourself to keep looking around you until you hit something. Don't give up and, and convince yourself actually online is more effective. I'm reaching more people. This is more valuable. Ah, oh, man, I would love to go on Rogan. We tried to get Felix on Rogan a while ago. And I still think Felix would do great on Rogan because they have the MMA thing in common. But now I think I would like to go too. I think we could, uh, I think we could have a, I think me and Joe could have a profitable discussion around ego death. Like start from there and then kind of like, Move outward. I think I think everyone would be good on Rogan, but I just think that uh, Felix certainly has the best the best cultural affinity with Rogan. A lot of inside jokes that they could make that I would have no idea about. Thank you. I, I, I trimmed this myself today. Yeah, this is uh, every couple months I go from polygamous compound guy. I trim it down to associate professor of Kanye studies at Evergreen State or whatever. I would love to see Virgil on Opie and Anthony. Or they're not a, that's not a show anymore. I've experienced ego death. I definitely have. There's no question. That's an interesting question. Someone asked about uh, the, the assertion that Marx, that Marx has, a, has, a, has a limited view of dialectics to Hegel because Marx believed that uh, contradictions would be completely overcome by communism and it would end contradiction, sort of you know, almost like a uh, mo uh, millennial way, whereas Hegel would say it would... Communism would have its own contradictions. 
Uh, I do think communism would have its own contradictions, but I feel like they would, in the end, resolve towards something I can't even really picture, but it would be universal enlightenment, I guess I would call it. A, mo a moment whereby every human consciousness is simultaneously attuned to full awareness of, their, of its cosmic unity, an actual, literal communion of the human race, collective and simultaneous. So I think, I, so I don't know, I, I don't know if that, because there's kind of a technicality, because I think you could argue, that, like for Marx, he didn't think that far ahead maybe, but uh, because he couldn't, he didn't have maybe the imagination to imagine what truly like a uh, Kim Stanley Robinson style universe expanding Amer human empire uh, operated along like a centrally planned communistic uh, economic model would look like. And I think the end point of that, I mean, our contradictions resolving towards spiritual, simultaneous spiritual ascension. And at that point, you've You've transcended space and time, so there's no more next. There's no more linearity. There's no more and then. And it, it would be the, the it would be a spiritual version of the of the universal paradise that Marx envisioned at the end of communism. And you could argue that it would be the next step from that earthly paradise. Yeah, see, that's the thing. Like, the limitations of Marx, someone says Marx didn't have quantum theory, you know. Uh, Marx didn't have relativity. So there are holes, like, there are limits to his ability to, like, fill an entire cosmology with his uh, limited human perception of the world around it. And, like, that, if you want to talk post-Marx, like, that's, that's where you integrate other thinking into Marxism, by adding that element. And it really... Uh, it, it just makes everything, it helps everything click into a larger understanding. And you realize that individual terms like Marxism or Buddhism or dialectical materialism are insufficient uh, because there's so much other stuff grafted onto them that it's a ship of Theseus problem. Eventually you have a new thing, but there's no word for it. But it is, it is a synthesis. A synthesis of things that are true at different times and places at different levels of abstraction. That fit together, and if you snap, uh, if you snap dialectical materialism as Marx understood it onto modern conceptions of astrophysics and uh, and uh, quantum mechanics, I don't want to get too wild here, and I sure shit don't want to bring out the whiteboard again. I know that that was a mistake from the very early days of the streams, but let me just say it's a very profitable line of inquiry. I'm so glad to have the microphone. This is great.
This is great. I got the stand now and I got the microphone. This is, God, I'm, I, I'm trying not to ever become a YouTube guy, but I'm slowly getting all of the putterances of a YouTube guy. No, I'm not going to bring back the whiteboard. Come on. I don't want to scare off newbies. I don't want somebody to try to log into their first stream and see me slamming at a whiteboard like uh, Glenn Beck. I don't think it would go well. Yeah, that's the thing. Twitch is better than YouTube, but my stuff ends up on YouTube anyway, and I think more people watch it there. So isn't that does that technically make me a YouTube guy? Oh boy. Oh boy. I consider myself a podcaster first and foremost. That is my I, uh, uh, that is my if I if we, if this if we had medieval ma naming conventions and I had a large brood, they would be called the podcasts or the podcasters. Be Matthew Podcaster would be my last name, and then I would hand my uh, my podcasting shop down to my son, Matthias Corvinus, Podcaster. I guess poster too, but I never really thought, but posting is sort of a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a subsidiary, like a lawyer is, a lawyer, even if they don't ever go into a law, uh, into court, even if they mostly draw off briefs and stuff, you wouldn't call them technically a writer, right? You call them a lawyer. Writer is like a subsidiary skill set. I think posting is like a base skill set that you can build a profession onto, build a artisanal confession on, a profession onto. Me and my guild of podcasters hanging out in the beer hall, getting into drunken fights with the goldsmiths, waiting outside for the Coopers to come out and kicking them all in the pantaloons. Ooh, fuck, Mary, kill Nehru, Lumumba, and Sicarno. Wow. Uh, well, Sicarno was wildly horny, so you gotta fuck him. Right? Obviously. Um, I gotta... I gotta marry Nehru for the jackets. Very, very cool. And, I mean, I guess I gotta kill Lumumba. Call me the Belgians, because I gotta kill Lumumba. Just because, you know, his his record is pretty... It's a, it's a lot of... He's like Len Bias. Lumumba's sort of like the Len Bias of left-wing revolutionary leaders. That he had maybe a little more potential, and then we didn't really ever get to see it. Mostly spent that time kind of like frantically negotiating, trying to negotiate his way around the Katanga crisis, uh, not really elegantly. And it's not his fault, obviously, but, and he was probably had no way of winning in the, against the combined might of the old European powers and the new American hege hegemon, but I don't know. He didn't, he never fulfilled his potential, let's say that. Chris Man the Headless Thompson Gunner. Erdogan is totally lit. Erdogan is like if Trump, I don't know, he's sort of like Trump and uh, 
George W. Bush had a baby because he has George W. Bush's cheap piety as a big political prop way more than Trump does. Even though evangelicals love him, he doesn't really speak that language culturally, only sort of with a great degree of backhanded uh, uh, condescension. You people love this stuff, don't you? Look at your Bible. Look at your little Bible. You love it. Erdogan takes it seriously, so they're going to fucking turn the Hagia Sophia into a goddamn mosque again, apparently. One of the greatest tourist attractions in the world, this uh, gorgeous uh, Byzantine cathedral with all these amazing uh, mosaic frescoes of the weird, creepy, adult-looking Byzantine Jesuses that they used to have in all their art. They'd have to cover all that shit up because you can't have any images in a, in a mosque. And then you wouldn't be able to like go up into the middle, the top part. It'd suck. And it's like, why would you even do that? It's it's the way it's what R. W. Bush would be doing right now if he was operating under similar economic conditions. Like if the culture was still in its 2004 era, like 50-50 combo, because now it's like 60-40. Now they've lost the culture war, and that's why they don't fight that terrain anymore. 2004, it was like 50-50, and you could uh, counter mobilize and and use it to win, and that's what they did in 2004. If those if those uh, cultural conditions had coincided with a deeper crisis in the economy, Bush would have done the kind of shit that Erdogan is doing, but for Christians. So there you go. And that makes sense because Erdogan spans the time period. He combines both those guys in one because he is one guy who's been there the whole time. I don't think there is going to be an upcoming baseball season. I don't think they're going to do it. I think a lot of this stuff is all going to end up falling apart. A lot of these assumed reopenings are going to kind of collapse. We're not going to have a big uh, return to a lockdown, but it's just going to be staggered and, and uncoordinated and, and chaotic. And all, and all that will happen is we will socially inure ourselves to more death and, so, and personal risk of bodily harm every time we left the house and more death of our family members and more just the social cost of knowing that human life were, is less than we thought it was worth. And that's why I think people are saying that like, these stories about high, higher crime rates since the Black Lives Matter protests started are the cops lying to try to make it scary for people. That's probably true, but I think people need to get ready for the reality that crime is going to go up Crime is absolutely going to go up in the near future because we're talking about a prolonged and horrifying economic crisis on top of which you have an institutional legitimacy crisis which makes people less likely to respect the law in the first place. Oh, and then on top of that... Um, wait, I'm, I lost my train of thought. God damn it. Uh, you'll have the, the material crisis of the collapse. You'll have the institutional crisis of nobody believing in any authority that they don't decide to believe in. Uh, there's one more, but I can't remember it. But anyway, uh, crime's going to go up. That's what I meant to say. Crime's going to go up. Uh, uh, and people need to get ready for that because it's, it's just a sign that society is fucking falling apart.
we have to acknowledge that there's going to be costs to further economic immiseration. If there wasn't, then why was it bad? It's bad because it has bad social impacts. But I think part of it is going to be on top of all those other things I said, life is just going to feel cheaper. Because we're making it cheaper. That has a psychic cost. And yeah, the answer to that would be a war. Somebody says, why can't we do a war? Well, that would work, except who do we realistically fight? We don't even, I don't think we have the capacity right now. Uh, I think anything too small would be beside the point because we're already at war everywhere. Any kind of medium-sized intervention isn't going to move the needle, uh, either economically or culturally, because uh, we're already at war everywhere. It'll have to be big. But who are the places we could credibly have a big war with that would not potentially kick our asses? Iran is always the number one, but Iran, I think everyone at the top who isn't completely uh, delusional, knows would kick our ass. They kick our ass. Any war, and, and the thing is, even if we were able to hold the place, any war where we had with anybody sub-China size is going to be a war of endless occupation like Iraq, which we hated and didn't win. And we'll know that. And Afghanistan. It's, it's just, oh, we're going to have another one of those. And that doesn't solve your problem. What solves your problem is an Iraq War One knockout punch. But that's nothing that you could do that would have that effect. Name me a political potential military engagement that could have the effect of a Gulf War One style national uh, revanche. Venezuela, yeah, that would go well. Yeah, millions of uh, of, of loyal uh, Chavista. People in the throughout in, in the in the vast majority of working class areas, all throughout the the dense urban areas and internal fucking jungle canopy that have held rebel or armies for generations, that's just South American Vietnam. No, there's none. Iran, that's Iraq, that's Iraq too, but worse and higher casualties because Iran is a much bigger country with a much bigger military than Iran was and. A, a more social uh, support for the government. Like Iraq at the end of the day was a classic dictatorship where the thing that held it together was force. There was very little social adherence to Baathism as such or Saddam as a person. Iran is different. There's social investment at the grassroots in that system that will fucking fight. Look what they did to Iraq. So you're, you're guaranteed something worse than Iraq. So you got Vietnam too and Venezuela. You've got Iraq 2, only worse in, like, it's like T2, like more higher stakes, higher, uh, higher budget, more explosions, more death. Although there were more dead in the first Terminator. So, and then, of course, China's off the fucking grid. That's not a possibility. They, ha they make half the fucking, they, 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 we, are inter we are totally interdependent economies at this point. That's why I say if everything doesn't fall apart, Global capitalism, if it continues, will be under the auspices of some sort of joint Sino-American union. So, yeah, no China. It's either a war that uh, neither one of us would win because it would destroy the economy of the other that we depend on, either for stuff or to buy stuff, which doesn't work. It'll be some sort of uh, hostile or either hostile corporate takeover or a mutual merger. And it'll be whose conditions on whose side... Who's, who's, who's negotiating it is going to, what it's going to come down to. But that's pretty far in the future. And that's why I'm just saying is that 
China war is impossible, basically, I think. China war is impossible. Russia war, I think China honestly wouldn't allow it, maybe. But even if they did, uh, what's the percentage there? Like, how would you do that? Especially since they have nukes and they have a lot of them. They have more than us. Ah, people, the nukes are real. It's, it's all brush fire wars. It's all going to be brush fire wars again. Until we take everything to space and then have space wars. Or we do uh, like an robot jocks and all war is replaced by countries putting their money together to create giant mech suits that fight, fist fight, and then the winner, they win the dispute. And honestly, I think we should do that. Mexico would be terrible. Mexico, we already, we've invaded Mexico before, we, and it, it was incredibly frustrating. I think it would only be more so. So yeah, I gotta say, uh, it's all headaches. It's all headaches. There's no, there's no knockout punches. There's just downside. And, and, and one of the things, one of the few real blessings of Trump is that He's hardwired with only two or three sort of big gazel instinctual political ideas that he just flails against the reality with. He has nothing more complicated than that. And one of them is that you don't want to lose a war because he saw it happen with Bush. And so like one of the two or three actual signal understandings of politics he has, like they're like uh, down power lines skittering across the road that sometimes connect with something. One of them is don't lose a war. And there isn't a war on the agenda that looks winnable, which is why he has been resistant to the Boltons' call for some sort of global uh, conflict. I mean, wouldn't... All right, I'm trying to think of what a Russian war would even look like. Like going to Ukraine, send, sending actual armed aid to the Ukrainian government. If that happened, would there be, like, Proud Boys and shit who would join... Like the three percenters and stuff, would they go over there like the Blue Legion from Spain during World War II went on Barbarossa? Because there's already the Nazis in Ukraine there, you know, the Azov guys. So then you could hit like a, a union to come together and then they could go to Russia. Grab that oil. Turn it all into an oil theme park. And then you could have all of the, the lefties who want to fight, who are itching for battle, they could go and join the Russian army. And then they could pretend that they were the Bolshevik, like joining the Bolsheviks during the Civil War. And they were fighting like the whites. And then everyone could have fun pretending that they were fighting out American politics in a foreign country because they can't have any influence on them here because there's no actual social influence on the political process on any meaningful questions at this point. So everyone is just working out their shit at the virtual level. Oh man, if we could get a naval war going, 
If we, if we, like, in the Bering Strait, old-fashioned, Russo-Japanese war-style broadside, somebody crossing the T, that'd be fun. Get C-Stack out there. Get him out of retirement. Brevet him up to Admiral, like, to uh, full Admiral or Bird Admiral or whatever they call him. Archduke Admiral? Admiral Crunch? What's the top Admiral? Rear Admiral obviously has to be the least Admiral, right? Because it's in the rear. Commodore? Is that one of them? Whatever. War with the Saudis. That's cute. That would never happen. They're, they're, we're essentially uh, part of the same... We're fused. At like the economic and even political level, there's a fusion that has happened between Saudi Arabia and Israel and the United States where you can't even really call them separate. They have independent interests that are sometimes in conflict, but they're almost always rendered subsidiary to the greater... Uh, unanimity of interests. And that's like the Saudis buying our, our weapons so much is, as anyone who saw Network knows, when Ned Beatty talks about the Saudi purchase of uh, the, the company they work for, he goes, the Saudis have took billions of dollars out of this country and now they must make it back. It is ebb and flow, tidal gravity. And that's true. We put a, we're, we're, we're dumping fucking uh, cash into the Middle East in the form of purchases of oil. That fucking money also has to be recirculated. And in the form of them buying, with our money, our fucking weapons and sending them back to us. Like a modern day triangle trade at the financial level. Yemen is just Iraq too, but even less, even more worthless because you don't even have any kind of real dramatic escalation. It would just be more of the same. Yeah, no, I think I, I agree with people who say that uh, an external war is less likely than some sort of internal conflict because right now Americans are really, really focused on hating each other to a point where I don't think any foreign enemy would have a unifying enough effect the way that they brought the Civil War halves of America together by the Spanish-American War. I don't think there's anything that could do that now. And the only thing that's going to satisfy it is a genuine conflict. A genu and it's going to happen, I think, a Biden... Con I, in my opinion, Biden winning uh, and presiding as a Grover Cleveland-style, Hunger Chancellor-style president, ineffectual Hoover-esque president of a second Great Depression... You're going to see regional movements of, of resistance to Washington. All, all the horror of this prolonged political, uh, this prolonged agony being explained by that demiurge, by saying America is still great. It has been captured by an evil wizard, an evil spirit. The demiurge, the George Soros, whoever you want to call it, Biden, Obama, whatever you want to personify him as. And then your governor is now the real president. And I'm not, talking that, I'm not saying that's necessarily going to come to a head, but I'm going to say that there are, God, there are absolutely going to be politicians who are going to be psychotic and or ambitious enough 
to see the play and cultivate it to the point of actually declaring some sort of conflict with America? Probably not, but definitely to ride it to national prominence and to replace Trump as the next head uh, headpiece of America's uh, social uh, reaction. So I think you'd see more lone wolf uh, political attacks from people like assassination attempts, shootings of Democratic, uh, Democratic campaign offices or symbols of the regime. Hell, maybe TV, uh, movie, movie theaters that are showing pedo films or something. Uh, and then you're definitely going to see some sort of state-based resistance, a, 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 neo, uh, a neo-nullification movement. And there's going to be somebody trying to get to be next president as being the Calhoun of that movement. But that kind of brinksmanship can go beyond your ability to control it, and you might end up getting conflict that you didn't mean. You just wanted to escalate things to your political advantage within the American system, and in so doing, you accidentally broke it. But then even if it's broken, hey, you get the bigger half, you win. Like, rather than reign in hell than serve in heaven, rather than to be the, the grand chancellor of the great American cheesecake factory republic, uh, that being governor of Georgia in the lame old United States, especially as America collapses into uh, ineffectual torpor in the face of persistent economic uh, stagnation and... Public health catastrophe. But I'm not saying that's going to happen or anything of that is that because there can always be intervening uh, events. Biden might not even win, and then all, all bets are off. It might not be Biden. That could change things a little bit, depending. He could die at any point. My God. He's a million years old, and now it looks like everyone's going to end up getting COVID. Although it still hasn't killed any overtly evil people yet, I must say. Bolsonaro has had it seven times. And it's that kind of thing that can make you believe like maybe you do live in a demiurgical reality. Maybe there is an evil interceding force that's preventing you from ascending because, my God, this horrible disease wrapping through the world and it's all the consequence of our most feckless and, and, and sociopathic leaders and all of them are protected in a, in a righteous cocoon from vengeance, the vengeance of the earth, from the re mask of the Red Death. It's like if the mask of the Red Death happened and the only people who died were in the servants' quarters and in the, in the little town filled with peasants at the end of the moat and everybody who was all in their finery up in the, in the ballroom got to just dance forever. That's what they've created now. And that's why it's hard not, sometimes not to feel like maybe there is a demiurge who's got a demi-urge to merge and to reward all human evil whenever they see it. Uh, all right, guys. I think this is good. I'm going to do more of these now that I have uh, music, or I'm sorry, a microphone that actually works because it's been really frustrating not knowing that people can hear me. So now that I feel more confident, there'll be more of these, including I'm hoping soon to do another girl stream. It looks like it's going to rain all week, so I might not be able to do it this week, but... Uh, when there's a nice sunny day, I might bust the grill out. And I don't know, put some dogs on or something. All right. 
拜拜。